If you have a Bible, open up with us to the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, and we are going to try to get as far through the section with Noah as we are able today. We have uh, begun, if you uh, look on the screen here, we've got the six major covenants we want to discuss in this series, and then there's obviously a lot more to cover after we cover these covenants, but this is sort of laying the groundwork of wh- where we want to go. And we spent a couple weeks arguing for a covenant with Adam. Even though Genesis doesn't use the word covenant, it seems to give us all the equipment of what makes up a covenant relationship. And uh, Greg mentioned last week about a definition, which we apologize for not giving you a better one earlier. But uh, here's just one from Tom Schreiner that I think is solid and helpful. Uh, Covenant can be defined as follows. So what definition of covenant are we using? Pretty simple definition. A covenant is a chosen relationship, a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. This is why marriage is a covenant, right? Two parties make binding promises to each other. And God makes the same kind of commitment with Adam, right? There, there is a, a, a chosen relationship between two parties with binding promises. There's life and death, right? There's blessing and curse, and there's stipulations and all these kinds of things. And we'll see that with Noah, and we will see that with Abraham, we will see that with Moses, David, and then uh, through Jesus in the new covenant. Let me make a, a yeah. comment. I remember uh, Trent Hunter um, was somebody I was listening to in relation to this, and he made a, a good contrast like between a covenant and a contract, and I thought this was good. It's kind of simple, but I think it gets the point across. He said a contract forms relationships in order to meet obligations. A covenant forms obligations in order to affect a relationship. And so wow. contract is more just on the obligation part. A covenant is more focused on the relationship part, but both have obligations. It's just where the emphasis is. Covenants focus on the relational aspect between the two parties, and all the obligations and requirements are meant to frame that relationship, give it structure, give it boundaries, but the focus is on the relationship, and that's why uh, we don't want to call it just a contract because it's not that. It's more than a contract. That's great. So can you pray for us, and then we will dive in? Yeah, let's pray. Father, what, what a privilege we have, again, to gather together and study your word uh, and consider how it is shaped and structured by these covenants that we see clearly in Scripture. Um, Lord, uh, help us grow in our grasp of how your Word fits together. Lord, as we go through this, help us see that box top of the puzzle. Uh, to may that picture become clearer and clearer uh, as we move through each of these covenants. Lord, um, help Mark and I right now just to, to be on this on the same page. Lord, help us... In, uh, Uh, balance one another out on this. um, And uh, Lord, help us be clear. Help us, Lord, say everything we need to say in order to uh, build this church up in the right way. So we just commit our hearts and minds to you for these few moments. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, as we look at the Bible's story, the covenants focus as sort of the skeletal structure. So as you work through the plot or the story, the covenants tell you how this thing is to be structured like a skeleton. Like, like, it's kind of underneath the flesh, underneath the surface, you've got this basic structure of how the pieces fit together. And we are going to jump into the covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. If you're in Genesis 3, we'll start with this all-important promise I think is familiar to most of us. Uh, I'll read it for us. Genesis 3.15, it's the first time the gospel shows up in the Bible. It's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel uh, by theologians. Here's what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, that would be Satan the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, that's Satan's children or his seed, and her offspring, Eve's seed. He, the offspring of Eve, 
shall bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Okay, so a couple things to note here. Do you see here that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, what are we going to have? We're going to have enmity. So throughout the rest of the biblical storyline, we're going to be seeing conflict between these two lines of descent with two different uh, ancestries. So in other words, you have those who are of their father, the devil. I mean, just think about the Bible. Do we have evidence of sons of the devil in the Bible? Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. He means that you are offspring of the serpent. And that's why you're trying to kill me. I'm the true son of God, and you hate me because you're of your father, the devil. I'm of my father, the true God who made us. And on and on, Cain and Abel, right? And then the very next story, Cain is offspring of the serpents because he acts like Satan. Abel is offspring of the woman. He acts like Christ in many ways. And so there's conflict. Cain hates Abel because he's of a different line. He's, of a, di he's a different father. He's a different kind of person. And uh, so... How does the Noahic covenant fit in with this promise as we look for a future serpent crusher? Notice again here, the he in this verse that will bruise your head is not the seed, uh, excuse me, it's not the seed of the serpent, it's the seed of the woman. So he, Jesus, is going to crush Satan's head and at the same time his heel will be bruised uh, in that conflict. Here's what Schreiner says. God pledged in this covenant with Noah that humanity will not be annihilated before the promise of Genesis 3.15 is realized. So why the rainbow promise? Why the promise not to send a worldwide flood? Why the promise to continue seasons and harvest and new moons and all these things throughout all of human history? Why is God sustaining an evil, wicked, fallen world made up of people like me and you? Why is God doing that? Because God made a promise that he would destroy the works of the serpent and overcome the works of the serpent and crush him. And God is not going to let the world be destroyed until he gets fulfilled that promise. So the rainbow promise is basically God saying, I'm going to sustain the physical cosmos and universe until the redemptive promise of the seed is fulfilled, until that day comes when, when Christ has come and destroyed uh, the works of Satan. Greg, thoughts on any of that? Um, not yet. Go ahead. Okay. G Genesis just 4.1, you can notice here. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, you, you can notice here, is Eve looking for the serpent crusher amongst her offspring? Yes, and she doesn't know it's going to be 4,000 years before he's born. She thinks it might be the first child to be born. It could be Cain. This might be the man I've gotten with the help of the Lord. He may crush the serpent's head. Is Cain the serpent crusher? Not even close. He's the first murderer uh, we won't read the story. You know the story. And God, after he kills his brother, he says, you are now cursed from the ground, which is open up to receive your brother's blood from your hand. First John later reflects, verse, first John 3.12, we should not be like Cain, who was what? He was of the evil one. He was seed of the serpent. And he showed that because he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So don't be surprised when the world hates you, etc. And that will be a theme in today's sermon, actually, that the animosity with the world. Cain is sent away from the presence of the Lord. Notice this, away from the presence of the Lord. And where does he go? East of Eden. East of Eden is always a sign of judgment in the Bible. You're moving further and further away from God's presence. In Cain's line, you have a man named Lamech right here. He's the first polygamist in the Bible, Genesis 4.23. He's got two wives, which is not God's design. And he says he's killed a man for wounding him, a young man for striking him. And he brags that he is more violent and vengeful than Cain. Is the world heading in the right direction right now? No, it is not. This is the downward spiral of sin that Genesis 1 through 11 is tracing. Just imagine Genesis 1 through 11, like a, a heading across a graph here, and you've got perfection here, 
perfect innocence, and then you have Adam's sin, you have this downward spiral heading all the way to the flood in Babel. That, that, that's just hopelessness is, what, is the human condition until God really makes this covenant with, Adam, with Noah and then also calls uh, Abraham out from, from, where, um, from his own worshiping of, of, uh, of uh, idols. Can I say one thing yeah. on Lamech here? Uh, verse 24 of Genesis 4, he says, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And it's, it's almost like he's glorying in and boasting in his evil and the judgment that's going to come. It's like, man, I got a whole lot. You know, look what I did in comparison to Cain. I mean, we see that attitude reflected, you know, today when people almost treat hell like it's going to be a party. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the real fun is like if you do what the devil wants you to do. Um, like that's where the real fun is. That's where the real thrill is. Um, and I mean, you know, think of it as Hebrews talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's not saying sin doesn't bring pleasure. It's just the pleasure it brings is very, very temporary. Um, it's, it's great for a moment and then pain, misery, chaos, and you either recognize that it's wrong, it's evil, it's, it's chaotic, and you need to turn from it, or you think, man, I just got to try harder next time and get a little, try to get more from it. Um, and we see Lamech falling into that second category. He's not remorseful. He's not repentant. He's not broken over his sin. He's, he, he is just leaning into it and, and just um, soaking in it and glorying in the fact that, man, look what I did so much more than Cain. If Cain was mm-hmm. bad, man, I'm a whole lot worse. Yes. I don't want to distract you with the story, but just a long time ago, uh, at least 15 years ago, I was at the 441 racetrack. And I was in a, I got into a conversation with it. I just come from a Bible study. So I was feeling some conviction about evangelism. So I was in this conversation with this guy, probably in his seventies, who was in this big like Volkswagen car outside. There was hardly anyone around. And we got into a long conversation. And I mean, I kid you not, like, I'm not making this up. He said to me, I'm going to hell and I've got friends who are going to greet me when I get there. That's what the guy told me. And when I asked him if I could pray for him, he said, no, got in his car and drove away. I mean, the craziest thing. So that's no joke. There are people who have this like warped sense mm-hmm. of like, I'm going there and it's going to be a party when I get there because my friends will be there when I'm there too, which is just a, a horribly broken and twisted yeah. way of looking at the future. Genesis 4.25, so there's another child. Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth. And look what she said. God has appointed for me another offspring. See? Now look, Eve is thinking this may be the one and she's kind of correct because Seth is the right line, but he's not the actual one. She says, instead of Abel for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And look, there's a good sign. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. So are we seeing some promise coming through the line of Seth? Yes, we are. Flash forward to Genesis 5. I'm gonna skip ahead here. The Genesis 5 is about everyone living and then dying. Even if they live a long time, like 900 years, they still what? They still die. It's this, it's this litany of death. But there's one exception. Enoch right here walked with God and he was not, for God took him. You say, what does that mean? Well, he didn't die. Hebrews 11.5 interprets it like this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. So we're getting a glimpse. Is there a way to, to get victory over death? Yes, and what is it? It's walking with Yahweh. So in some way, trusting in and walking with Yahweh, the covenant God, is in some way hope that God will overcome death and rescue us. It's a little sneak preview in the line of death in Genesis 5. The one exception is the man who walked with Yahweh. That's, that's the way we can, get, we can somehow get victory over death is through walking with the Lord. Genesis 5, uh, 28, look at this. 
And I'll get you to comment on this, Greg, here with, with Noah's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 28, when Lamech, this is a different Lamech in the line of Seth, when he had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Now look at this. Out of the ground, see if these words sound familiar. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall give us relief. The word Noah sounds like the word relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Greg, what are we seeing is going on in the mind of Lamech here about Noah? Uh, well, Lamech is drawing on the promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise of the offspring of Eve coming to crush the head of the serpent. Like that, like that you're talking, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have passed since God made that promise. And that is a real promise to people. Like it is there. It's in their consciousness. It's in their thinking. Um, it, it pervades their, their heart as they look around at the world. They see obviously long life, but there's still death. Like this promise of someone who's going to come and fix things is a real promise that they are actually holding on to. Um, you know, because we're talking, it's like they didn't, it's not that God made that and then everybody forgot about it. And it's like, you know, Genesis 3.15 happened and now nobody thinks about it. No, that promise had been passed from generation to generation to generation, father to son, father to son, father to son, um, so that Lamech comes along, 182 years old, and he is seeing in his son Noah a potential uh, realization of this promise. Um, And so, you know, I, I think there's a principle we can draw from that, um, is that throughout the rest of Scripture, not just this little short mm-hmm. portion of Genesis that covers a long time, but that promise of a coming Savior, and we've said this before, that is shaping and fueling and driving everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like covenant and everything like that, like this is why we say to start with Abraham, as important as he is, isn't starting early enough in the story. Yeah. You know, dispensationalists, like they don't go back far enough in terms of how they do this. Like you have to start with that promise in Genesis 3.15. Like that's the mother promise. That's what drives scripture more than anything else. Um, and we see very clearly Lamech here. He's like, I think Noah's going to be the guy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's also interesting. Like, you know, numbers are important in the Bible. Lamech lived 777 years. I mean, that, that, the seven is that, you know, the number of, of, of God, it's the number of perfection. And, and Lamech does live 777 years and Noah comes on the scene. You know, is he, we have to ask the question based on what Lamech says, is Noah the guy? Yep. Is Noah the one God promised in Genesis 3.15? And building off that, just think about this. We get more insight into how people were thinking at the time. Sometimes we can just think that back then they just didn't know any clue of what was going on, but they knew a lot more than we often give them credit for. If you look at the screen at what Noah's dad says about Noah, we, we can see what the serpent crusher was envisioned to do. He's going to reverse the curse. What was the curse? I mean, you know Genesis 3, God said to Adam... Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground. You see the parallel here. Because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So is this serpent crusher envisioned not simply as beating the serpent, but undoing the effects of the fall that the serpent brought about Absolutely he is. So they were looking for a full-blown savior figure. They're looking for someone who's going to renew the world, someone who's going to bring a new creation, someone who's going to get rid of the curse and sin and death, someone who's going to completely overwhelm the works of Satan. And what does 1 John say? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 
He's the serpent crusher. He's the one Noah they thought would be but failed to be. But you see, Noah is a Christ figure in many ways, right? Does Noah come for a, is Noah part of a cataclysmic worldwide judgment and a new creation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Does that parallel what Jesus is going to do? Jesus is just like it happened in the days of Noah. It's going to happen again when I come back, except it will be fire rather than water. When I come, there's going to be a worldwide judgment. Uh, just like in the days of Noah, people will be unexpecting it. I will come like lightning from the sky. I will judge heaven and earth. Two people will be grinding in a mill, one taken, one left. I'm going to do this massive division just like in Noah's day. And what's going to happen? I'm afterwards going to judge and renew the whole world. So, Noah is seen by Jesus as a type of himself, which is, you were talking to me about this earlier today. Noah is, is a type of what Christ is going to do. Now, why, why is, does there need to be a flood? We know these verses, Genesis 6, 5, if you want to flip there. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, verse 8, but Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of of the Lord. So don't, don't ever think that God is acting unjustly when he sends a judgment. Here's, the sh- here's what Noah's story is meant to tell us. By the end of the story, here's what we learn. And it really is so counterintuitive and counter the way we think, because we're so man-centered in the way we think. Here's the, here's the point of Noah. It's not really so much a children's story, although we do tell it to children. It's way more intense in some ways than a children's story. What's the point? Here's the point of the story. God is saying every single generation of human beings for all of time deserves a worldwide flood. Every single generation. This is why the, the, the rainbow is a bow. It's a warrior's bow. And God pointed the warrior's bow at earth and shot the target at earth and it flooded the world. And now the rainbow, he's hanging his bow up. His warrior's bow is being hung up in the heavens. It's facing up, not down. It's no longer facing toward us. That's the symbolism here because God is saying, look, man is still wicked from birth after the flood. Man is still wicked from birth. I deserve to give a flood to every single generation of mankind. But because of my grace, I'm not going to flood every generation. I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm going to preserve life and send a savior, and I'm going to save countless millions of my redeemed people, and I'm going to do the opposite of what justice would say in some ways. Eventually, he will bring justice. But God is going to be patient and gracious with us for every generation coming from that point. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. So you see here, is Noah a Adam figure? He is blameless. He's walking with God. He's righteous. Uh, and the Lord is going to bring judgment on others. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah was not saved by being good. He was saved by faith. And it was his faith that made him into a righteous, into a righteous man. I want to I draw attention to this because it's important. In the Old Testament, we learn this from Paul, the order in which things come actually matters. Yes. Because um, I've seen some memes, memes on social media that talk about, you know, God chose Noah because Noah was righteous, because Noah was blameless. But what comes first in the story Noah found favor or grace with God, mm-hmm. with the Lord. Um, so grace comes first, then a blameless, righteous life after that. 
never the other way around. And the reason why I say order in this sense matters is because when Paul talks about justification, and we've mentioned this before, he goes to the story of Abraham and he's like, when was Abraham circumcised? Before or after God declared him righteous? It was like it was before. So Abraham was righteous was in the sight of God. After. You're right. He was righteous in the sight of God by faith. And then he was circumcised at a later point. And Paul builds his gospel on that yep. truth. Why he refutes the Judaizers, those who are trying to say you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul's like, look, Abraham was righteous before he received the seal of circumcision, the sign of circumcision. And so I think in this story, drawing from that kind of principle that Paul teaches us, the fact that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and then he's called blameless and righteous. I think that, that, that there's something we need to see in that, which is like I've already said, we find grace and favor and that produces a righteous, blameless life. Not that Noah was sinless, but in comparison to the world around him, Noah was a completely different guy. Absolutely. That's, that's well said. Genesis six fourteen: make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Verse 17, for behold, I bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die but I will establish my covenant with you. Remember, it's not the word cut as in starting a new covenant. It's the word establish as in renewing a covenant we think was already started with Adam. And now Noah is the new Adam figure. And, and you'll see that the job of Adam is in large part passed on to Noah. You'll see as we go, uh, if that's not familiar to you. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Remarkable uh, actions here. Verse 11 of chapter seven, in the 600th year of Noah life, Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And he's in there for about a year. If you look at uh, chapter eight, verse one, excuse me, verse eight, chapter eight, verse uh, one, God remembered Noah, verse four, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. I just want to show you a map here. So Mount Ararat located there on the corner of the screen. That's where Noah uh, landed. And you can see a modern day, so you picture most of biblical history taking place south of that, right? But Noah's up there, Mount Ararat, and you can see a modern day picture of, of the mountain range there. We don't know precisely where. I know there's, people have all kinds of theories. I, I, I want to be a little slow to embrace all the theories about where Noah's Ark might be found or something. I, I kind of wonder if he didn't use the wood for other purposes rather than leave the Ark just sitting there when there was no trees around at the time. So I just think he would reuse the wood to build a house or something. Anyway, I don't know. But uh, that's, that's around where Noah was, where Noah landed. And Noah built an altar, chapter 8, verse 20, offered burnt offerings. And this is all important, verse 21 of chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And here, here it is, while the earth remains... Uh, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now, do you see here? Is every generation wicked from birth? Did the flood fix the problem of human evil? No, the problem is still there. So anytime someone says, well, you know what, Lord, if we could fix the problem, just if we could just find a righteous person and start over with his family, we would fix the sin problem in this world. Just think about our culture today. Things are just falling apart everywhere you look, right? You look at the news, it's just depressing. Like you look at all these horrible things happening across the world and you say, you know what? If God just picked me and my righteous family, started over with just me and my family, it would be a great world. No, it wouldn't because you know what would happen? You'd end up having kids and grandkids who did not walk with the Lord and then they would end up having families who didn't walk with the Lord and what would happen? 
the world would be in the same mess it's in now. So this argument that we could just start over with us and everything's gonna be great, the Lord would say, no, that, that's not the case. He starts over with Noah and still there is gonna be evil, but God is going to preserve the earth until the promise of redemption uh, is realized. Can I make a couple of comments Please. on that? One, like to what you were just saying, you know, a lot of people have the mindset if you just give people more education, then all, they you know, just it magically makes people better. And it's like, no, education informs the mind, but it doesn't necessarily touch the heart. And our problem is fundamentally a heart problem. We are wicked from the, the core of who we are. We are, this is total depravity. This is radical depravity. Like no part of us is untouched by sin. And so simply saying, throw some more information at people is going to suddenly make them better people is absolutely foolish. Mm -hmm. But that is the prevailing philosophy in our culture today. If you just give more education, people will be better and all, you know, if they just know what you know, you know, know more than all of a sudden they're magically going to, you know, stop doing wicked things. And what that totally ignores, totally misses is that sin uh, resides in the heart, not not first in the mind. Yes, our minds are affected by sin, but sin is something we prefer. Like you, you can look at all the right stuff and still desire the opposite. You can, that's what sin does. It corrupts, it distorts, it twists, uh, twists us into to creatures that, you know, by the grace of God, aren't as bad as we could be, but are nothing like what we should be. Mm -hmm. um, and um, also too, you know, I, I don't want to get off on this point, but I think it's interesting. God makes a promise the, the world's going to stay in existence and keep working. It might not be perfect, but the, the alarm that some are sounding that the world's just going to end because of this climate crisis or that whatever over there, um, like God made a promise the world's going to keep going and it's going to keep going until Jesus returns. It, it might be messed up a little bit and, you know, we, we can make things more difficult, but the world's like it's going to continue. Like it's going to continue. So the, the fear that is out there, Christians have bought into this. We have to be very careful. Uh, it goes against God's promise in this verse. I mean, God's saying, again, read it. Um, While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Um, and remember, there, there's this whole, uh, after the flood, you know, if, if you paid any attention to answers in Genesis. Like there was an ice age and we're still warming up from an ice age and the climate is not as predictable as we like to think it is. Um, so things are going to be changing. Yes, but it's not because of something we did. It's because we live in a broken, messed up world and we live in, in, a, in a world that changes over time. And so don't, don't buy into the hysteria and the fear, please. Um, God said it's going to stay and it's going to stay because God said so. That's good. And now let's repeat this one more time since I think it's so central to today. Triner again, God pledged in this covenant that humanity will not be annihilated before the promise of Genesis 3.15 is realized. If you get that, you get what we're trying to say today, I think, in large part. Chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 1. This is, again, getting into the details of the covenant. 9.1. <clears throat> and God blessed Noah. Just, just see if this sounds like Adam and Eve parallels here. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This is verse three. And as, I, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So notice here that God has expanded our diet restrictions. And I, I am thankful for this, okay? So <laughs> as a carnivore, I am very thankful for this. So Adam and Eve in the garden were eating fruits only, right? They were not eating animals. They weren't killing and eating animals in the Garden of Eden. Um, there's different speculation. I think it's likely that people were allowed to eat animals after the fall, but God is making it official here. Some people think this is the first time it's allowed. I don't know how you parse that out. I wasn't there at the time. Either way, by the time you get to Noah, God is definitely allowing you to kill animals and to eat them. Uh, that is definitely allowed, whereas it used to be only green plants. Now it's everything. Uh, verse 
verse uh, 5 and 4. Now, this is important because this is where uh, civil government is really instituted by God in these verses. This is the first time the government is put in place, and I know it, it may not seem super clear when you first hear it, but, but uh, this is, this is, I think you'll see it as we go. Verses 5 and 6 are critical to understanding the role of human government. And Romans 13, I think, is exactly in alignment with this text right here. So those are the two Old Testament, New Testament texts on government that are so helpful. Genesis 9, 5. And for your lifeblood, talking about someone dying, I will require a reckoning. So this is governmental civil justice for murder is essentially what we're talking about. And he says here, from every beast I will require it. So if an animal kills a person, and I will require it from man, if a person kills a person. From his fellow man, okay, now this is a little thing I found out. The word fellow in ESV, and in the NAS, it's more literally translated brother. It is the actual uh, word brother. It's the first time the word brother has appeared in Genesis since Cain said, I'm not my brother's keeper. Very interesting. He murdered his brother and said, I'm not, a, I'm, not his brother's, I'm not my brother's keeper. And God says, actually, yeah, you are. Everyone is their brother's keeper. If you kill your brother man, it's gonna be, you're going to be guilty, okay, just like Cain. I think there's a wordplay going on. I'll require a reckoning. So this is important. I'll require a reckoning for the life of a man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, notice this here. Has the image of God disappeared once sin entered the world? No. Even sinful humanity, we may mar the image of God, certainly we do, but do we still have the image of God? Yes. Every, so this is so important. I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Greg. It applies to everything imaginable. This applies to the unborn. They are in the image of God. This applies to the severely mentally handicapped. They are in the image of God. Uh, people who have a high education are in the image of God. People who are wicked ru world rulers are in the image of God. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you're a human being, you are made in God's image, and therefore you have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Even a murderer who is on death row and is justly facing the death penalty in, that, in a certain situation, they are still to be treated as image bearers of God. That doesn't mean they are not treated justly. They should be treated with justice, but also with the inherent dignity that comes with being an image bearer of God. So this applies to all kinds of stuff. And I just want to say, God says here, the very reason for the death penalty for intentional murder here is grounded not because people don't matter, but because people matter so much. If we allow the murder of human beings to be treated as not a serious deal, we're actually devaluing the image of God in the one who was killed. This is why God says to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. So you, you see here again the principle of because of the value of the one who is slain innocently, the Lord will require a reckoning. Greg, there's, I know there's a thousand applications. Uh, capital punishment is godly. I mean, that might be weird to hear in our day and time, but it is because it's commanded by God for the good of society. Um, and when you throw off that restraint, when you give wicked human beings the freedom to murder other wicked human beings, society cannot long stand up with that kind of practice in place. Like this is one of the most important foundations in a society is that life is precious. Um, if it's not, uh, I mean, we see, what's, we see what's going on in our own land today. Um, and it's not a good thing. But it's not just the Old Testament that reaffirms this. James, yes. in James chapter 3, in that great tech passage where he's talking about the tongue, um, listen, listen to what he says here, uh, what, what, what he draws from as to why we should be careful what we say to other people. 
Uh, start reading in uh, just verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And listen to verse 9. With that tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He's drawing from Genesis, from Genesis 1 um, and, and Genesis 9. And uh, also, I think Genesis 5, where it's reiterated the likeness of God. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then here's the admonition. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. They ought not to be so. Why should we be careful how we talk to and how we talk about other human beings, whether Christian or not, because every human being is made in the likeness of God. Does that mean that people do not frustrate us and we do not see wickedness on display? Not saying that at all. But regardless of the person, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, they still bear God's image. And we have to be careful with our words to them and about them on that basis. And again, just one more thing here. You can apply this to so many things. So with abortion, it is what? It's taking the child and saying, because it doesn't have self-awareness or because it can't produce anything in society, it's therefore less than human. It could be alive, but not have personhood. You heard that? That mm -hmm. just makes, that just makes me infuriated when I hear that. Uh, I have to control myself when I'm in a conversation and this kind of stuff might come up because no, no, we, we got to understand that child may not have full self-awareness. That child is an image bearer, no less and no more than I am. No, no more or less than you are. Take the Holocaust, the treatment of the Jewish people as less than being truly yeah. uh, in God's image, or take, uh, uh, you can do, you can multiply examples, all, the African slave trade, treating African slaves as less than fully human over and over and over again, massive issues and horrific things that have happened in our, in our society and our culture happen from what? Not acknowledging Genesis chapter five, verse, uh, Genesis nine, verse six, everyone's made in God's image. If we believe that, that changes fundamentally how we act and how we treat people in society. If you have your Bible open, turn to, to Romans 13 just for a moment. We don't have time to do a long thing here, but Romans 13, I think, reaffirms what you see in the Noahic covenant. I believe the institution of government is here. And if you look at Romans 13, uh, we know these verses, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So we're definitely talking about government here. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Verse 4, for he, government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So just, I, I know that there are 10,000 questions that you could ask right now, and I'd probably share you, well, a lot of those questions with you, like exactly how does this flesh itself out with evil governments, because all governments fall short, and there's a million questions. Just note, number one, Paul was writing this while Nero was Caesar. And Nero's going to have Paul killed in about a decade after he writes this. So just keep that in mind. Paul knows that there are horrible, wicked governments. Always read Romans 13. Next to Revelation 13, the beast is, a, is, a, is an empire used by Satan to persecute Christians. So those two texts should be held in tension because they inform each other. We know governments are fallen. But here's what you can say at the least. When a government is acting as God calls it to, 
which is saying a lot, but when a government is doing what God asks it to do, then deliberate intentional murder should be punished by the death of the one doing deliberate intentional homicide. Now, I was just recently, this came up in class discussion with one of our seniors, and, and, and the student was asking about, well, what about misuses of capital punishment? What about when people get capital punishment, they don't deserve it? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. We need to do everything we can, legally speaking, to make sure the right people get the right punishments. I don't want to take lightly that at all, and I'm not saying we, we treat this lightly and just throw it around to whoever is, 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 we think might be guilty. Of course, there needs to be proper legal proceedings, but... Um, the Bible also in the Old Testament distinguishes deliberate murder from involuntary manslaughter. If you look through the, the, the case laws in Exodus, you have someone who has an axe and they haven't secured the axe head properly. They're cutting down a tree. As they f- pull back the axe, the axe head falls off, accidentally hits their neighbor and kills them. It is still an extraordinarily serious thing to do something that could, could potentially accidentally take human life. And there are serious repercussions for that, but it's not treated the same way as deliberate murder. Okay, so we do want to have distinctions and, and wisdom here. But if anyone says uh, capital punishment is automatically unbiblical, mm-hmm. Both testaments reaffirm it. The sword is carried in, Gen- in, Roma- in Romans 13, and here, uh, by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, I have a, a couple of thoughts. One going off um, what that student said. Like, and I mean, that, that's a real, like, Absolutely. and we feel that, like, you know, when the, the punishment of the law has been wrongly inflicted on someone. Um, but we, we dare not find any reason to disobey God because of a misuse of something God said mm-hmm. or, or the, the imperfect use of it. Um, God commanded it, and we have no right for whatever reason to suspend that. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did, and we'll get to this eventually in Matthew 15, with their Corbin rule when they said, you know, you know Scripture commands, you know, honor your father and mother. If you don't, whoever reviles father and mother deserves to die. That, that context, it meant when they got old, they didn't have, you know, Social Security, 403B, 401K. They didn't have retirement plans. Their children were their retirement plan. You got to care for mom and dad when they get older and provide for them. Um, and the Pharisees said with their Corbin rule, well, this has been dedicated to God. And once this has been dedicated to God, I don't have to, I can't use it for anything else. Said, Sorry, mom and dad, all that I was going to give you have already dedicated to the Lord. Um, and therefore I can't support you. And Jesus, like you have made void the word of God by your tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point is no, no matter how reasonable, no matter, uh, no matter the situation that comes up, even the potential misuse, if God has said to do something, we have no right to say, don't do that. Like we can't suspend the law of God for any human, um, in any relevant or whatever, what I, and I'm, I'm missing the word that I want here, but uh, pragmatic reason, prag, pragmatism never trumps clear commands of scripture. It, it would be like if a church, if you knew of a church that practiced church discipline in a very irresponsible and sinful way, mm-hmm. therefore we should never practice church discipline. Right. That would be the logic. It's like, wait, no, no, exactly. let's do it the right biblical way, but let's not throw out the biblical principle because of an right. abuse of that principle, which yes. I think is, what, is what's going on in some situations where we can read about yeah, today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so uh, one more thing I want to say about this before we move on, and there's, there's a world of theology in these like two verses, there's just so much here, but w- one more thing to add here is this, why is this mentioned right now in the Bible storyline? It seems kind of off, like random. Like, why are we talking about the death penalty in the middle of Noah's story? And here's, here's the reason why. Genesis 6, the world is full of evil and violence. People are murdering each other. So God wipes the world clean, starts over with a righteous man and his family. Has the problem been solved of human evil and violence? No. So God institutes government as a common grace restraint to give a disincentive against human violence and murder. 
You see this? The flood did not fix the problem of murder, so now God institutes government to help with the problem of murder, to give disincentives to, the, to, to, to murder and violence and, and other kinds of protecting people's goods and things of that nature. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Verse 8. Here, here's the covenant again. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow. There is no word rainbow in Hebrew. It's just the word warrior's bow. That's just, that's the word bow, like a warrior's bow. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, verse 16, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So again, God's taken away the warrior's bow and hung it up in the heavens as a sign of peace. And yes, to this day, we are under the Noahic covenant, praise God. And every time you see a rainbow, which we saw, I saw one last week, uh, last time you see a rainbow, that is God literally showing in the heavens the sign of his covenant for us all to see and remember that God will sustain the world until redemptive history has come to its conclusion. Now we got to get to the bad news of Noah, the part that's not in your children's Bible, okay? Are you ready for this? You know the story. So verse 18 of, of Genesis 9, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham notices the father of Canaan. That's not a good sign. These are the sons of Noah. Now look, like Adam, Noah falls. Genesis 9:20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned back, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, just stop here for a second. At this moment, and oh, he'll also curse Canaan, the, his grandson, through Ham's line. At this point, it is really remarkable. The first time I saw this, uh, John Salehammer's commentary on Genesis I blew my mind when I first saw this about, I don't know, about eight years ago. This is, this is what John Salehammer explained. I was like, wow, never knew that. He says, when you put Noah and Adam's stories parallel to each other, the similarities are really incredible. So you were talking about this, Greg. In both stories, uh, you get to a point where the world is covered in water. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the spirit was hovering over the face of the mighty deep. There's just water. There's no land. In Noah's story, they're on the ark. The whole land is covered. Even the mountains are covered by water. Okay. You've got watery deep. You've got God's wind or spirit blowing, moving over the waters. And then God does what? He begins to bring dry land up out of the waters again. And then God takes the one righteous man with his family and places him somewhere and says, it's time for you to be fruitful and multiply. And there's some connection with all the animals, right? Adam names the animals. Noah has all the animals on the ark. They're connected to the animals and the whole human race. They're told to do the same thing, be fruitful and multiply. And then guess what happens? They both end up in a garden. Adam's in a garden, Noah's in a vineyard. They both misuse fruit in a sinful way and uncover their nakedness, right? They eat the fruit in the garden and they realize they were naked. Noah drinks the, the vine, the fruit, and he lays naked in the tent. And in both cases, the cursing and blessings follow. In both stories, there's cursing and blessing that follows, and there's a promise still that God is going to save. So is Noah a new Adam figure? Yes, but just like Adam, he sins horribly, 
And he commits the same kind of sin that no doubt people committed who were swept away in that flood, drunk and naked and whatever all was going on there. Um, do we have young people in the room? Uh, just, I'll just say a word here. There's, there's a, I'm not saying I agree with this view, but there's a large number of, there's a good number of scholars who believe that uh, what Ham did with his father may have been incestuous uh, because of the phrase, un, to uncover the nakedness of a family member in Leviticus is referring to incest over and over and over again. Some people think there was an incestuous act, which is why verse 24 says, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, uh, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. I'm not sure I endorse that view, but a lot of good scholars take that view, and it is certainly a possibility. Whatever happened in that tent was shameful and evil, and it, at the very least, he mocked his father for his sin. The brothers cover the nakedness, just like God covered Adam's nakedness. The sons covered Noah's nakedness, and uh, the story uh, continues moving on from there. Greg, some, some more thoughts as we move toward a conclusion. Um, thinking of the parallels, you mentioned this, you know, Genesis 1, Genesis 8, the, the spirit moving over the waters, stuff like that. Um, you know, John in John chapter 3 talks about, or Jesus talks to Nicodemus, and we know this, about the new birth. Okay, and th this is what is so fascinating, because in both the Old and the New Testaments, the word for spirit is also the word for wind. It's also the word for breath. Listen to Jesus here. Keep in mind the Spirit of God in creation, moving, hovering, uh, bringing the creation, forming it, and, and Noah coming out of the ark like the, the wind had to blow in order for the water to recede. And so Noah, in a sense, enters a new creation mm -hmm. uh, by the work of the Spirit. Listen to what uh, John says in John chapter 3. When you see this connection, like it, it's, it's hard to forget. Jesus says to Nicodemus, John 3 um, verse, uh, verse seven, he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's talked about being born of the spirit, water in the spirit. The wind blows, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. And so drawing from both water, wind, spirit, Jesus is, is weaving those things together to help us understand what happens when we're born again. When, you know, when God moves on us, the Spirit of God gives us new life. New the Bible creation. says, yes, if anyone's in Christ, behold, new creation. Um, and so just as the Spirit prepared the way for Noah and his family to enter in to a new world, so the Spirit of God moves on us, gives us new life, and we enter in to a new life um, as well. And that's amazing to think about. That's good. So we'll wrap up right here. Four quick things to mention as takeaways. Number one, I think in this church, this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, the flood is a real historical event. This is not symbolism. This is a real worldwide global flood. Uh, I believe that. Uh, Jesus, I think, clearly taught that as well. Number two, the covenant with Noah is still in place today. And this is a truly unconditional covenant. Uh, no matter what humanity does, God is not going to break the covenant with Noah. That rainbow is going to stay there no matter what fallen humanity does. He's not going to destroy the world until redemption history is finished. Number three, Noah's flood is a type of final judgment. Jesus compares his second coming to the days of Noah. And number four, the ark in the flood waters is a type of Christian baptism. We don't have time for this. We've got 30 seconds. So we'll do this really quick. Don't be confused by this verse. 1 Peter 3.20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. They were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Do you see this Greek word? That Greek word writes, my pen will work, there. That's the word antitype, antitupon. So that's the word antitype. 
Uh, baptism and what it represents, us dying with Christ and Christ's death to save us, is an antitype of Noah's flood and Noah's ark. So just as Noah's family was saved through the waters of God's judgment in the ark, we are saved through the waters of God's judgment in Christ, and Christian baptism represents that, us dying with Christ. in the, You know, the waters of baptism represent God's horrible wrath and judgment. Jesus was baptized and was truly died in those waters. We are simply symbolically put under and brought up out of the waters, but Jesus took the real flood waters of wrath. And Baptism is an antitype of what Noah went through, and it now saves us not the physical act of removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've got to stop here. It's a whole lot of stuff, but Greg, can you close us in prayer? Let's pray. Father, uh, wow, we're so thankful that you are a God of grace, uh, Lord, that you do not deal with us uh, according to our sins. Lord, we're thankful that we see how wicked we are. And yet, Lord, the, what Noah's generation experienced is not what we experience. You, you allow life to go on, um, even with all of human wickedness uh, and what it does uh, and what, how it expresses itself. And God, thank you that you are patient uh, with this world. Uh, Lord, we uh, are believers because you have extended that patience, uh, Lord, for a very long time. If you had used it up quickly, Lord, we would not be here and we would have no hope. But God, we're thankful um, Lord, and, and while we still have breath, Lord, help us extend the hope of new life and forgiveness, uh, Lord, to those around us as we have opportunity. Um, God, thank you uh, for the covenant that you've made for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, a covenant that brings full forgiveness of sins, uh, eternal life, adoption into your family, and so many other blessings. God, we're so grateful. Uh, and Lord, now we just ask you uh, continue to keep our hearts ready to hear